I think that that's why it's so important for people to know their own sensory preferences and be able to sort of self-regulate throughout the day, because that's going to be the first step is taking those strategies and that time for sensory self-care, where we get to the second step of, of having the expectation of somebody else understanding and responding to our sensory needs. I mean, that's really nice. And I would love it if the world worked that way and like everybody was aware of sensory needs, but it's really a twofold issue. We have an awesome discussion today where Michelle and I sat down with Dr. Elizabeth Barr to talk all about strategies for creatives, entrepreneurs with an ADHD or squiggly brained or neurodivergent diagnosis or identification. And we had such a lovely conversation with Liz talking all about strategies for better understanding how to work with executive dysfunction, as well as understanding your sensory processing and sensory wellness preferences. We cover a lot of ground and we are really excited to continue this discussion about squiggly-brained strategies for working as an entrepreneur, creative, spiritual, intuitive being. Elizabeth is a joy to talk to. She's also a wonderful North Node member that we're so happy to have in the community, just like so many of you who are listening and part of the North Node, or if you've heard of it, We have an insane community of really talented, creative, intuitive people, including people like Liz. Liz has a disclaimer at the beginning that you'll hear before we hop into the episode because it's a complicated subject speaking as a doctor and practitioner and professor about these sensitive and complex issues. And we have a lot of resources that Liz has sent along and provided in the show notes. So if you're curious to learn more about anything we discussed, please check out the resources in the show notes. And before we get in, Liz also shared some really wonderful quotes with us about neurodiversity. And I just wanna read them to set the stage and the tone for the discussion and the idea of neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is a state of nature to be respected, an analytical tool for examining social issues, an argument for the conservation and facilitation of human diversity. That's by Judy Singer. Neurodiversity is a term that refers to an obvious and indisputable feature of Earth's biosphere. Neurodiversity refers to the virtually infinite neurocognitive variability within Earth's human population. It points to the fact that every human has a unique nervous system with a unique combination of abilities and needs. Okay, promise last one. Neurodiversity is a subset of biodiversity, a term mostly used for the purpose of advocating for the conservation of species. And the source of this will also be linked in the show notes, so check it out if you're curious. And without further ado, I'm just going to let us get into the conversation because we meander, of course, as three squiggly-brained people do. And we come back around, hopefully, to some very useful strategies and ideas. So we really hope you like the episode. Please let us know what you think on IG or on Spotify. You can write directly back to us about what you thought of the episode, what you want us to go deeper on, and we'll let you get into it. Hope you enjoy. 
My intention here today is to educate and speak from my own personal experience. This does not imply any type of medical advice, diagnosis, any type of client practitioner relationship. And although that there is a doctor in front of my name, I'm a doctor of occupational therapy and function is my specialty. So I don't diagnose or cure any diseases or illnesses. If a listener has any questions, I'll be glad to provide resources for show notes, but they should always talk to their physician or their primary care provider about their health or making any big health decisions. Welcome to the 12th House Pod. We're so happy to have you here. So happy to be here. I'm a longtime listener, longtime fan. And as I told you both before, I'm just like starstruck to be here. So I'm a little <laughs> nervous, but hopefully we'll get through it together. I mean, hopefully we live up to your expectations. It's a lot. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> We're on. not as funny and charming as we seem. There's a lot of editing that goes into this podcast. <laughs> Liz, we first met in a North Node onboarding call. And we just, it was one of those calls where it was like, oh my gosh, 30 minutes flew by. This is not enough time. And we really got into a lot quickly. And I was immediately fascinated by a lot of not only your dynamism in your career and creative life, but also the ease with which you spoke about your own journey through managing ADHD, but working with people with neurodivergent diagnoses and creativity as an intersecting interest. And we just have been talking about having you on the pod for a while, especially as that's our focus this month. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. And I feel like one of the big problems with our healthcare system is like people don't have access to specialists. So the more education, the more research, the more science, more knowledge that, you know, I could share as a practitioner, the better it is for like wellness for all people, you know, especially people who identify as neurodiverse or have chronic conditions, you know, people of all abilities. And that's really what I stand for. That is a perfect segue because I think that it would be really helpful if we just kind of define some of the terms that maybe people have heard floating around on the internet or on social media. So Liz, how would you define neurodivergent and neurodiverse versus neurotypical? Okay. So let's say neurodiversity. It is a term that sprang from sociologist. Her name's Judy Singer. I believe it was in the 19, I want to say the 1980s. I might be wrong on the date. Um, but it was to promote what was called neurological minorities, right? People who think in ways that may be, you know, as you describe on at holisticism, nonlinear ways of thinking, right? So maybe it's more of like a spiral type thought pattern or more of like cyclical thinking, that type of thing. Again, I love the term like nonlinear squiggly brained beings because that's what I think of as I kind of think of like a line. I was introduced to this concept during my training. At NYU, I received a master's in science there in occupational therapy, and I had some really great mentors. One of them had really educated us on uh, neurodiver- neurodivergence and neurodiversity as a way to work with our with our clients who, um, you know, are on the autism spectrum or who have ADHD, who have sensory processing issues, who have different types of this neurodivergence in general. So it's it's a neurotypical. Like when I think of a neurotypical, I think of somebody just without neurodivergence, right? Somebody who might not struggle as much with like executive functioning, um, organization, um, emotional regulation, all of those different components that executive functioning has. Um, And then of course, because there's so many, there's so many different diagnostic categories under the umbrella of neurodiversity, 
it's really important to ask people, you know, how they define themselves as neurodiverse. Yeah, I think a, a lot of times the connotation is with the autism spectrum, right? When we say neurodivergent, right. but it seems like there's so much more that falls under that umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that falls under the umbrella. There's so many different, you know, modes of thinking, ways of being. The way that I tend to look at just neurodiversity, working with clients in general is thinking in terms of like client-centered practice, right? So like, what does the individual want for themselves rather than what do I think they need as like the clinician or the professional who's working with them? Mm -hmm. And really working as a partner with that person instead of saying, hey, I'm the one with the license, I'm the one with the degrees, therefore I'm the expert. Like, yeah, there's, I have some, like some science background and stuff like that. I can help figure some stuff out. But at the end of the day, the individual is going to be the expert on their own life. Um, and I'm really there to support them. So that's kind of like my version of neurodiversity. I'm sure that, I'm sure that other people have much different ways of defining it. But I love the way that holisticism defines as nonlinear, squiggly-brained beings <laughs> that encompasses a variety of experiences and diagnoses and all of the above. One of the terms that you mentioned within executive functions was sensory processing. And that is a term that I feel like I personally am just becoming more aware of what that means for me. But what has that meant for you in terms of understanding it in a way that helps you identify it either in yourself or other people and help develop strategies around it? How does it show up differently for people? Because when I learned about it, I was like, oh, that really articulate so many of the things that I couldn't quite pinpoint as to why, you know, I had to go to a specific part of the library to do a specific thing at school or else I could not get it done. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, sensory processing is super interesting. It's a, it's a different component than executive functioning skills, which tend oh, to okay. be impacted by people who have um, ADHD, sometimes people who are on the autism spectrum a lot of times for people who identify as being neurodiverse or neurodivergent. And, you know, executive functioning issues can also impact people who are not neurodivergent, um, Mm -hmm. especially with like the influx of tech and social media and like phones constantly ringing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like the demands of everyday life. Um, Mm -hmm. Sensory processing has to do with the, um, the nervous system and how our modes of perception can impact the way we integrate the world around us. So a lot of people will ask, like, is sensory processing disorder a real disorder? Mm -hmm. And are often surprised to hear, like, the answer is technically no, Um, even though this this definitely veers away from a lot of people's lived experience. Mm -hmm. Whether it should be classified a disorder or not, you know, has been contested. It's not in the ICD-11. It's not in the DSM. Mm -hmm. But it's a very real um, experience that a lot of people have, right? closest kind of categorization that we have is uh, autism spectrum disorder with sensory dysfunction. But again, understanding sensory function like as a whole and looking at it as, okay, so what are my sensory needs? Where am I experiencing difficulties? Um, Rather than disorder or not disorder. Mm. So like, like most conditions or most experiences, I sort of look at it as, um, is it enabling somebody to function with what they want to do and what they want to find, what they find meaningful, or is it preventing their function in this area? 
Right. Because I mean, a lot of people have like sensory quirks or like sensory preferences, but when there's real difficulties and it's impacting with your everyday life, that's when I kind of look at it and say, okay, like maybe there, maybe we should like come up with some strategies here. You know, maybe we should like work on sensory wellness and that type of thing for this person. So what would an example of sensory, what would that look like for somebody? Like a sensory processing issue? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll use myself as the example because you know, I'll speak from the eye here. One of the one of the activities that we did when I was in my training as an occupational therapist was we all had to fill out what's called a, a sensory profile. It's a type of assessment tool that helps uh, that helps occupational therapists determine what type of sensory dysfunctions a person has, whether it be an adult, um, somebody help, somebody with a mental health issue, an older adult, um, a student. It could really impact with everyday life, right? So. Again, speaking from the eye, we all had to fill out this this assessment <laughs> and then we all had to score the assessment and it was like, okay, so raise your hand if you have like a definite di- difference in one of these categories. And one of my definite differences is hearing um, Ooh, and sound in auditory sense. Yes. Um, and it is definitely a tricky one. I have miso- misophonia. So mm. what the like, exact mm-hmm. definition of that is hatred of sounds, which is like so extreme, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the way that it shows up is like, if somebody, if, if there's a very particular sound in the environment, it could trigger a nervous system reaction, a, like a sympathetic nervous system response of fight, flight, or flee. I, I'm not going to fight somebody. However, if I run into like an ASMR video on TikTok or YouTube, I'm scrolling right past it because it has like the opposite effect on yeah. me. Oh, same. Um, I hate those. I'm like, me too. Ooh. Do you really? Yes. Yeah. You do too, Michelle? Okay. Yeah, they're not okay, for me. So we're not alone also, here. like anyone no. chewing, <laughs> chewing is all, like I almost have to excuse myself from the table sometimes with certain people because I just can't focus. I can't do anything right. but focus on it. And I like want to yell at them. Like, don't talk right. with your mouth full or right. like stop smacking your lips, but oh inappropriate. <laughs> I also kind of have it when things are in a minor key and it's not like a horror setting. <laughs> that makes sense. You're like, stop making it creepy in here. I don't like this minor yeah. key. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I can't deal with this. If this is not associated with the appropriate context, I have to leave. <laughs> You're like, I'm not here for the excessive spookiness. Like, yeah. Cut it out yeah. Yeah. I really struggle to separate myself in public spaces to once I attach to a conversation that I'm overhearing, especially mm-hmm. if it's at a certain, I guess, volume, I, I really struggle to focus on the person in front of me if I'm like into the other conversation already. Is that related? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, for the for the purpose of like, of like our talk today, there's generally, you know, your five sen- senses mm-hmm. and then three hidden senses. And then on top of that, there's at least three. Some researchers, some researchers categorize it to up up to eight different different types, right? So that's like eight to the wow. eighth power of different sensory types a person can have. Right. Right. So it's a lot of different types. That's a lot of different types. Well, that's so cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. And, and again, it's not really, it's not necessarily like the same exact thing as misophonia or the same exact thing. I know that like a highly sensitive person sometimes get, sometimes get mixed up in this. Um, mm-hmm. Those are, those are more of like psychological constructs, sensory processing issues. They, they really have to deal with our eight senses. So I'll go into those a little bit now. I kind of touched on auditory sense 
We have our visual sense, our auditory sense, our tactile sense, your sense of touch, our sense of smell, our sense of taste, and then the three hidden senses. So we have our vestibular sense, which is related to the inner ear movement balance. Um, it also has to do with our, uh, our head position, right? Mm. Because the way that kind of like our ears are situated in our um, inner ears is going to give our, our nervous system information about our movement through space. Um, then we have our sense of proprioception, which has to do with um, how we experience pressure, deep pressure. Um, we have a lot of different receptors in our joints, in our skin, in our muscles that feed back information. Um, and then the last one that I think has become more popular over the past couple of years is interoception. Um, and in my clinical practice, I've found that interoception has a lot to do with missing those bodily signals for, for neurodiverse people, particularly with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, I was so into my project, I forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to eat mm-hmm. today. And now I am panicking and hungry and like not happy yeah. because I missed out on my interoceptive signals of needing to um, needing to eat. Mm. So while circling back to your question about feeling like, I guess, a bit overwhelmed or maybe having difficulty kind of focusing your auditory attention when there's noise in the background. So let's get into, we kind of went over like the different senses, right? The different modes that we perceive them. And then within each of these modes, there's kind of like subcategories. Mm-hmm. These are very basic. You know, I'll, I'll kind of send a little bit more information. So if people are interested, yeah. they can learn more about it. Um, but for the most part, there's there's about three subtypes. We have sensory over-responsive. All right. Somebody mm-hmm. who's over-responsive is going to be like, in my example, or, or all of our examples, like for auditory, um, you might get really easily overwhelmed with... Um, auditory stimuli, meaning you have a, your nervous system has a low threshold for this type of stimulation. Again, nothing wrong with it doesn't mean that it's, it's something that absolutely needs to be fixed. But the, the way I look at it is when it starts interfering with, you know, your outcomes or your quality of life or what you want to be doing, your meaningful activities and occupations, that's when it becomes more of an issue. Like if you're hogging the playlist on Spotify and you won't give up the (laughs) DJ position. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, so next we have sensory under-responsive. And somebody who's under-responsive is going to have a higher threshold, meaning they need more information to hit Mm -hmm. that threshold. Mm -hmm. So like one of the examples I could think with this using the auditory example is I used to work a lot with children in my practice. That actually tends to be a lot of where this information and where this research and where this intervention right. is with children, which I guess we'll get into later. But it's it's been one of the major like inspirations for me to kind of rebrand and start a new business directed mm-hmm. towards diverse adults. Um, but somebody who's sensory under responsive, like say example for a kid, is maybe when they're in school, teacher calls their name over and over and over and over and over again, and the child has been checked for like differences in their hearing, any type of hearing disorders, and there's no other bi- underlying bi- biological reason, but, and they, and they, and they have uh, receptive language skills, but perhaps they're not processing, right? It takes like three or four times in order for them to process, like my name is being called. Um, so maybe they require more sensory input because of that. And then the third subtype would be somebody who's sensory seeking or sensory craving, I see this subtype a lot with vestibular or movement, you know, somebody who craves a lot, a lot, a lot of movement. The only issue with sensory seeking or craving types is sometimes like 
we seek out this information. We seek it out, we seek it out, we seek it out. And then it's not entirely integrated the way we think it's going to be. And it winds up making us feel a bit disorganized. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> I was like, oh, do I know that one? Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is More getting uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Wait, sexy, sexy, too much, too much. <laughs> and then you're like, what do I even do with all of this? It's like that meme of Charlie from It's Always Sunny. And you're like trying to connect <laughs> the dots and you're like, I'm not even sure. Oh my God, 100%. Yeah. But it's just too, it's like too much sensory information. Same thing if like, some people have this if they're maybe trying to work and listen to, to music at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It results in like a, kind of like a disorganized response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Sometimes this has to do with our inner state. And then sometimes this can like manifest itself as like our behaviors, our outward behaviors, or like even our behaviors towards others. Like I've snapped at people for like chewing the wrong way in front of me. And I feel horrible for doing it because it's just like, it's just like this nerve. I feel like, I feel like a, like a walking nervous system. Like, where is my humanity here? Like, why did I just do that? And it, you know, there's, there's been this concept that's like been talked about in the autistic community. I'm not sure how much it relates to the sensory processing issues and whatnot, but, you know, I'm sure because a lot of autistic people do experience sensory processing issues, this term could also apply. Um, but it's called the double empathy problem, mm-hmm. where sometimes people who are neurodiverse or autistic can get called out for n- not be not not having empathy. I say this with like, you know, you you both see me like making these air quotes, but right. you know, for listeners, it's important to say that like th- these are not my thoughts. Autistic mm-hmm. people are, you know, one thousand percent capable of empathy and everything else and a neurotypical person is. However, the double empathy problem comes in where like, you know, with the neurodiverse side, it's like, no, no, no. Like you're perceiving us as not having empathy for you. However, you're also not having empathy for my experience here. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I I don't know a good like symbolism for this. Maybe you guys could help me, but it's like fingers are pointed at one another. Right. right? And it's, it's this misunderstanding. It's miscommunication about how, these two neurotypes, right? Neurotypicals and like neurodiverse people can, can really run into issues with like communication. Totally. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I think just being uh, someone who's neurodivergent, if you're in relationship with someone, you know, if you want one thing and someone wants another thing, you try to compromise and meet in the middle, right? But sometimes uh, if you're experiencing like sensory processing overload, you cannot compromise because you cannot function. So you need to say like, turn the music down, like whatever, whatever it is that you need. And that might impact the other person. It will impact the other person. Like, well, they like listening to Pitbull uh, on, uh, you know, on 11, but you just can't handle it. And that's, that's tough in relationship because you want to compromise, but you're asking someone to sacrifice and that can build up resentment in the other person. Yeah, a thousand percent. And I think that that's why it's so important for people to know their own sensory preferences and be able to sort of self-regulate throughout the day, because that's going to be the first step is like taking those strategies and that, and, and that time for sensory self-care mm. where we like get to the second step of, of having the expectation of somebody else understanding and responding to our sensory needs. I mean, that's really nice. And I would love it if the world worked that way and like everybody was aware of sensory needs, but it's, it's, a, it's really, a, it's really a twofold issue. And the first yeah. step, I think, is definitely self-awareness of what we need as individuals 
that's like personal responsibility. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. So Wallace, I wanted to get back to what you were saying about having an issue hearing a lot of different sounds in the environment. Mm. To me, that sounds like a little bit of sensory over-responsiveness with the auditory sense, which would also make sense with like being very sensitive to people chewing and like different sounds. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a low threshold for sensory information, meaning you need less, you need less auditory input. And sometimes this is mixed. Like some, maybe sometimes you'll seek, maybe sometimes, you know, you'll be a little bit over-responsive, but for the most part that that example kind of fits in over-response profile. The reason why I why I why I know this is because I'm the same way. Where if there's too many noises in my environment, mm-hmm. um, if there's like if I'm listening to a podcast and say like there's music on in the other room, or there's a conversation going on and then there's music on on the other side of the room, it's really overwhelming. Yeah, really overwhelming, and it's hard to kind of like localize where the sound is coming from. I feel like I kind of swing in the directions where I sometimes need to be hyped up if I'm feeling tired, but I feel like I have too much caffeine. So I definitely can also overdo that, which doesn't help. (laughs) But sometimes I'll be in a co-working space or a coffee shop and I'll just put my headphones on because it's a buffer and I'm not listening to anything, but it just helps me feel like I'm in a bubble. And it's also the cue for my brain to be like, you are focusing and (laughs) it helps. When you're talking about sensory wellness, Mm -hmm. it makes me think so much about what the pandemic has done for that, how it's really maybe fast-tracked a lot of people to become more aware of their needs, both Mm -hmm. at home and what they maybe weren't getting or when they feel that they're not getting enough stimulation at home and, and vice versa and how to seek those things out. And I feel like that's part of what I see as the renegotiation to going back in the office is this like underlying theme or what I imagine to be for people is like, how do you really advocate for that as part mm-hmm. of why you don't want to go back to the office and have that be something that's understood and respected in maybe some more traditional workplaces? That's really interesting. That's a super interesting theory. And I think that you just put words to something that like, has kind of been floating around in the back of my mind, but you just summarized it so eloquently. And I think that people receiving diagnoses can be a really great thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like Michelle, you had mentioned that you have an ADHD diagnosis. Like how did that impact you getting that diagnosis? I mean, it, it like changed everything for me. It also like really validated a lot of what I'd experienced. Mm-hmm. My dad has an ADHD diagnosis. He got it at the same time that I did and he's 66. Oh, wow. And yeah, that's, that's kind of common now. Yeah. He thought he had dementia and they're like, no, you have ADHD. Um, and it t- totally changed his life and, and going on medication totally changed his relationship with my, my mom, like the way that they interact. Um, he's a much mm. happier, like more focused person. And that is such a relief. But I will also say to the sensory processing, the day that I started medication, I feel like I've talked about this before. I was overwhelmed with emotion because I realized I could get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of working. And prior to that, I felt like I never could because I would lose my place. Mm-hmm. And so I would just ignore um, mm-hmm. all of my body's, you know, uh, cues, signs and signals because, I, and I had so much anxiety um, anytime I would get up or get interrupted because I didn't know if I was going to be able to pick back up. So that's, it's been like life-changing truly, like, and so affirming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that like 
one of one of the things that we one of the terms that we use in research is something that's called like an operational definition, right? And an operational definition is a very agreed upon and specific definition of a certain concept or a certain term, um, so that it's replicable, like for either research purposes or for understanding. And I think that when we when we ourselves are are diagnosed with either specific conditions or neurodevelopmental conditions. I mean, I'm sure you look back on your childhood too and you're like, oh my God, like this explains so much. Totally. It's like, because sensory processing disorder isn't, it's definitely becoming, it's definitely becoming more accepted. And like, I think in the collective conscious of like awareness of like, oh yeah, this exists, like sensory needs do exist. Disorder does exist within this. Because it's not an actual disorder, I think that people have a lot of trouble finding education like on their needs and then also finding specialists who may be able to help them totally if they're if they're having a lot of issues with it right and a lot of neurodiverse people particularly uh people who are on the autism spectrum usually you know if you have if you have an autism diagnosis and you're having a lot of sensory issues sometimes if a physician will recommend like, oh, you know, you might be able to go see a specialist. But for people who may not have particular diagnosis and may just have sensory issues, which there's some research that shows that it that it does exist by itself, it's going to be really hard to get a diagnosis and, and get the help that they need. Again, I mentioned because and so much information out there is around children. So if an adult is just kind of just coming into awareness of, oh man, like I think that I think that I might need some help here. Like I think that this would really improve my quality of life and help me do the things that I want to do. It's really hard to get help. I feel like there are so many things that just came to my brain as you were speaking about that and I definitely want to make sure that we get to like talking about entrepreneurs or creatives who perhaps feel like just overwhelmed when they finally sit down to do their business and how sensory processing issues can come into that. But one thing that comes to mind is for so many of us, we live in our brains and in our minds and we're so out of our bodies constantly. And maybe that's just, you know, that's societal um, because we have to be, or maybe it's, I don't know, Liz, you could probably tell us more, just almost a response to like having to be out of your body in order to function because you are, you do have sensory processing issues. Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of people, I I see trends, especially like on social media and TikTok, it might be because that algorithm is recommended to me, but I I don't know a ton about this, but I, again, think it's very interesting that this seems to be something that people are talking about more is just like dissociating. Yeah. Um, dissociating in order to get done what we need to get done. And I think that there's a lot of nuance here, right? Because it's like, when I think of function versus dysfunction, can a person do what they want to be doing? Or is there some, are they, are they having like dysfunction with this particular activity? I also think about things like, okay, so like they might be engaging in this task and it might look like, um, you know, they're not having any issues whatsoever. Maybe they're doing it perfectly, but perhaps, you know, they're masking mm-hmm. or perhaps this is going to lead to some type of burnout for, mm-hmm. you know, forcing themselves into a, a mold or like maybe a workplace that that's not fitting for them. That's not making the accommodations for them that, that they need in order to feel well. I think that's a huge problem 
for people who listen to the 12th house, right? They're almost like white knuckling through life, right? Um, or through mm-hmm. tasks like their day to day. Like you can do things, obviously, like you're so capable and you're performing all these tax- tasks and functions, but it's exhausting. Or yeah, you, you reach burnout so quickly or you feel like you continue to burn out no matter what you change. So I, don't, I, don't, I think that this is going to be like life changing for some people and very affirming. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing is with sensory processing is like, just like executive function, not everybody might have executive functioning issues, but everyone has executive functioning. It's part Mm -hmm. of our neurology. Everybody has sensory processing. It's part of our neurology. So if we could think about these different parts of these different parts of ourselves that are, that are wired in and thinking about how like we could become more aware of these like little pieces of ourselves, similar to like our psychology, right? Or like our musculoskeletal system, like optimizing also our like neurology and our nervous system uh, to make sure that to make sure that we're able to like self-regulate throughout the day mm-hmm. um, without being like cruel to ourselves and like like you said, just white knuckling through it. Like I've experienced burnout before. I know a, a lot of people have these last few years it's been psychologically like grueling the past few years. And I think that like just self-awareness of like talking through these things is really the first step in like coming, coming to terms with it and making that plan for yourself of like, okay, so like, what can I do? What kind of strategies can I use? What kind of environmental accommodations can I make for myself that are going to make me like a little bit more comfortable throughout the day? You know, it might not be perfect and that's okay. Like sometimes it's not, you know, I kind of like the story of like the way that I like to describe it is the three little bears. <laughs> Where it's like the just right in yeah. the middle, right? You have like too hot, like, okay, that's, that's like too much, too much like overload, overload. And then you have too cold, which is like, uh, that's not really like enough sensory information. Of course, it's going to be very different for every person depending on their types. Um, and then you have that just right. And the just right, it might not look like perfection. I think that we want to avoid things needing to be perfect in order to get done. Um, but it might look like, okay, this is good enough. Like I can work with this. One of the things that's coming up is I feel like a lot of listeners might know what we mean when we're talking about that, but could you share examples of how that might come up, especially for creatives, like where you could name something and be like, oh, that's actually an issue with executive function that I'm having. So I know there's a strategy or an alternative strategy I could use to help me versus feeling victim to the circumstance. Yeah, a thousand percent. So I know that executive functioning is talked a lot about, especially for neurodiverse people, people who are diagnosed with ADHD um, because of the issues with the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is the area of our brain that's responsible for higher order thinking or executive functioning issues. It's the last part of our brain to develop. Um, It's at the very sort of like front of our brain here. I've read before (laughs) and I might have to like go back to my references and like send in a correction if this is wrong, that the the prefrontal cortex, it it doesn't stop developing until the person is about in like their mid twenties. I also have heard that. In my mind, I was like 26. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little self-serving because I was like, "Hmm, I don't know, about 23 for me. I was kind of an idiot back then, but at 26, I was great. (laughs) Golden. 
Right. Well, I think that that understanding too gives like a little bit more self understanding and like grace for the decisions we made like in our early 20s. I think that a lot of people are maybe getting a lot of content recommended to them in terms of like neurodiversity hmm. or here's 10 ways, you know, if you have ADHD or yeah, like yes. here's, how to, here's how to fix your dopamine. Like here's how to dopamine fast. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is so trendy on TikTok, ADHD diagnosing, but especially dopamine conversations. Yeah. Dopamine hacking. Dopamine mm-hmm. hacking. Right. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, there is a lot of research about how we can improve our dopamine health, you know, just through like different strategies throughout the day. Um, I think that Huberman lab is wonderful for that. There's like such specific, like neurobiological strategies on like, here's what to do when here's this protocol, here's the research behind it. So like, there are a lot of things that people can do, but I'm not a huge fan of the word hacking. Yeah. <laughs> I, yep. I agree. Little <laughs> aggressive. Mm-hmm. Like, can it just be like we're taking care of our nervous system? Like it doesn't have to be hacking it. Like right. you said your nervous system doesn't want to cooperate with you and you have to hack it. Like Mm-mm. really? Come on. Or even like connotation with optimization as if that's like the pinnacle, you'll be the best version of yourself, which means that like anytime you're not that, you're the worst version of yourself. Like I don't love the binary that's created there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as somebody who has like a, quite a few chronic conditions, it's like kind of reframing that as like, well, I can still be whole and healthy mm-hmm. and still have these conditions. These two don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yep. Um, Absolutely. And I think growing up as like a child in like the 90s and early 2000s and like, you know, early wellness culture and whatnot, it's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, this is like what you have to do to be the epitome. Like this is hustle mm-hmm. culture. Like this is wellness culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's just so much more nuance to it. Right. Um, I think that people are doing the best that they can to share information. And I think it's really important to listen to people with firsthand experience of being neurodivergent, having these diagnoses. That being said, I also think that nuance is extremely important. I think that, you know, sometimes like if somebody sees a video or maybe sees like information online, like definitely knowing where that information came from and maybe fact checking it is like super important, super important. Wait, we can't believe everything we see on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe like some places, but I don't know. Some places are a little bit more trustworthy than others. (laughs) So, Okay. I wanted to get back to your question on executive function. We kind of talked about like when it develops, like around, like when it stops developing around, around the age of 25. One of the things with ADHD to remember is like, it's considered a neurodevelopmental disorder, right? So what that typically means is there's some type of like developmental delay associated with it. On average, and again, I can send you research on this, the ADHD brain tends to develop later than the neurotypical brain, which I think you know, is, is a tricky thing to remember because there's all of these other components with it. And that delay is sometimes maybe overlooked, right? So it's like people who have ADHD definitely want to give themselves more grace with executive functioning issues. Um, so things like planning, timing, attention, working memory, these are all 
areas of executive functioning. I think that externalizing these organization skills that might be, you know, a little bit less than somebody who's neurotypical may have less capacity than somebody who's neurotypical using, using strategies like the ones that, the ones that you recommend on holisticism, like Monday hour one, like using notion in order to like really externalize your thoughts, using something like a second brain so that you're not holding all this information inside of you, like a storage system is like huge. That makes such a huge difference because it helps like when you're actually going to do something, you're not 20 steps behind trying to like find what you were looking for in the first place, right? So yeah, just kind of externalizing. But the other thing that I that I really want to say here is like, particularly with people with ADHD, it's not really a matter of being educated on strategies. A lot of people with ADHD know themselves more because they have been educated <laughs> so much on strategies, whether it be through, you know, going to therapy seeing their neurologist or just kind of like seeking out the information of themselves. It's really like a disconnect in knowing what to do and then like execution, right? So it's, it's not about education and knowing what to do. It's not, it's about the implementation piece, right? So that implementation is really where it's at for people who, who do have executive functioning issues. And I feel like we could just do a whole episode on that. There's so many components when it comes to either motivation, ADHD tax that people experience, avoidance, different presentations of ADHD, um, and just, you know, very specific strategies that can, that can be helpful. And you do so much wonderful work at Holisticism, just trying to help be inclusive of people of all different, of all different abilities and particularly with the neurodiverse community and squiggly brained intuitives, as you so lovely put it. So yeah, that's kind of like my two cents. A more personal question, a little pivot here. You're not only an occupational therapist, but you're a creative writer yourself. Yeah. yeah. You have many, many different facets of your personality kind of in many of your projects and interests coming out in different ways. That wasn't really a proper sentence, but (laughs) (laughs) what makes me curious is what have you found for you works really well? I I know while we were emailing, you were mentioning you're a big fan of the 12 week year and that's been really helpful for you. I have this process that I love that's called, um, that's called seasonal syncing or seasonal goal setting. And it's about kind of flowing with the cycles of our external world to serve as reminder reminders of our internal world. Um, and a reminder that like, there's a time for everything, right? So maybe in the winter, I focus more on, um, I focus more on contemplation and ideation and, and planning and dreaming about the year to come. And then maybe in the spring, I work more on like planting those seeds and and nurturing those dreams. And the summer is more of like a time of blossoming and like being out and about and like, you know, really lassoing in the energy of the summer, the summer season, especially here in the Northeast. It's rough the other six months of the year. And then in the fall, like really taking, really taking what you have and like, and like pruning it, like what worked, what didn't work. Like, what can I kind of get rid of here in order to make space for my next year's growth? And I am working on a nonfiction book about this. Nice. If there's any literary agents listening, (laughs) I'm I'm like all yours already. The book is our, 
the book is it's, it was a whole process. <laughs> it's, with, it's with test readers right now. Um, but oh. I do have an article on my Substack about the process that I use for seasonal goal setting. Um, and I have a free, a free notion template for listeners if they want to go buy definitely. it. But it's about like, um, thinking, thinking about, especially in terms of creative cycles, like, okay, what are my main priorities and what am I going to let go of or move to the side right now in order to make face, make space for the completion of this project? Um, for so many years of my life, I was so like, hor- like, like atrocious at completing things. The ideation, the idea phase, like fantastic, right? Like no problem. But like the sticking it through until it was complete was like a huge, huge, huge issue. Um, so really having these sort of spotlights, you know, per season is super helpful. It also kind of helps to, um, get, give me a little bit momentum and think about like, you know, you talk about the, what the 80, 20 rule a lot, like what 20% of this goal that I can complete in 12 weeks is going to account for like 80% of the outcome that I'm looking for. And if, if there's enough digging there, I can usually find it. Um, but it's extremely helpful to kind of sync with the season. Like, I think that there's a reason why so many new year's resolutions fail. Um, I saw a meme the other day that was like, like the middle of winter is no time to reinvent oneself (laughs) (laughs) to overhaul your whole life, which is so true. Like, absolutely. It's time for wintering. Yeah, exactly. Like I want to hibernate. Um, I want to come back out in the spring I don't necessarily want to like change everything about my life right now. Yeah. The year just ended. Like I'm still processing yeah. 2022 at this point. I love the 12 week year. And you mentioned that in addition to working seasonally, like seasonally cycling through your goals. And something I really appreciate about the 12 week year is that I can be in planning mode forever and ever and ever and kind of just get stuck continuing to like see the long game and extending it. And it forces me to have a specific period of time and be like, okay, the end is on this date. So I can't plan more than that. I can only plan to this. And that sort of like forces me out of planning and into action. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's also so helpful to see the deadline. Mm-hmm. Again, go- going back to just like neurodiversity in general is like, people with ADHD are known to have something that's like temporal discounting, right? So if you, if you cannot see the, the end, then it's really, really challenging to think that long-term and a year is a really long time. Like a year is a really long time. Everything can change in a year. Like your whole life can change in a year. Every, every facet, you know, when I think about where I'm going to be a year from now, I see like a blank space, you know, I don't, or a black hole. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm not, I, I don't have visions for myself. It just is so hard to, to leapfrog to that point for, for me personally. Yeah. I hadn't thought about the temporal discounting versus time blindness, how they differ and how they're similar. But I think that it's so true in terms of how people usually cram for a deadline and how often that's the way that ADHD people are motivated. And when it's just you and you and your creative projects where that all falls apart, if you don't set in the right boundaries for yourself and accountability. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned creative projects here too, because as somebody who has a lot of roles 
and who makes a lot of <laughs> a lot of just different like roles like roles and positions for myself, you know, being an entrepreneur, having other work responsibilities, it's really hard sometimes to prioritize creativity and making time for just creative exploration and creative execution towards one's creative goals. And it's like, it has to be on the horizon. It has to be made into like something that's touched upon daily, right? Because I think the other thing too is like, if we're, if we're not looking at something daily, even if it's like, I'm going to write like a two line poem today, or I'm just going to like check in with how my weekend was and write in my journal, or I'm going to like make some like digital collage on Canva, like kind of make it cute. Mm-hmm. Then, <laughs> or like working on more of a long-term project. Like I personally tend to like forget about my creative well-being, if that's the yes. case. And I'm not sure if it's the way that just society is in general, that we don't really make time for play or just creative execution without you know, turning it into like a side hustle on Etsy. But I feel like just taking that time for oneself is so important for well-being, especially for people who identify as like extremely creative or extremely intuitive. And that doesn't always have to look like completing a super long-term like 12 week project. Sometimes I could just look like a daily, a daily creative ritual. Do you have any preferred daily creative ritual that you're doing right now that's keeping you in that rhythm? Yeah, I subscribe to the Substack Austin. I think it's Austin Cleone. I might be. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's great. Still like an artist, the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so good. He's so great. Like, what an inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, but he inspired me to start keeping just like a daily journal. Um, even if it's not, even if it's not a written journal, I was pretty into uh, Julia Cameron's like morning pages a while ago. Um, but sometimes it could be a little bit too daunting for me to like, okay, I have to sit down and yeah. write everything that's on my mind. Sometimes I like kind of just need to move past what's on my mind and like get into action. Right? So I have like a little journal that I use. This is like my creative desk over here, as you mm. can see, like, reading, journaling. I've been really into like what's called junk journaling lately. So just kind of like taking little scraps of my daily life and either like pasting it on the pages or like printing out something that I made and like just pasting it on there. Oh, cool. It helps just like making, like making bad art every day. It's <laughs> just such, like a great antidote for perfectionism or needing that something truth. perfect in order to be complete, which, you know, I think that's something that all creatives struggle with. I took a flash fiction course last semester and my professor had mentioned something the first few days that really stood out to me. And flash fiction, of course, is like, you know, shorter fiction usually... It's either under a thousand words or under 500 words. Great course. And he brought up this concept. I can't remember the writer who original who, who originated this term, but it was called psychic release, right? And it's like, if you can write a really short piece of fiction or you can create like one page in your junk journal. And again, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be a little like morsel of something, something to build your creative confidence, something to keep that creative habit. It's going to release a lot of energy psychically, especially when you're working on a long-term project like a work of fiction or maybe building a business or maybe a nonfiction book, maybe like a, a, a really intricate you know, article or piece of work that you're working on, maybe like a huge painting that you're working on. Having those little projects that you can work on in between, again, it just releases a huge amount of energy. 
and it keeps things exciting. <laughs> I love that psychic release. You could just write a sentence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Those one line a day books. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, huge fan. I like that. That's such a great tip. I'm already thinking of my like scrap junk journal and like what I could use. Yes. Definitely Um, need a printer though. (laughs) You don't though. You don't. Like what you need is like go outside. Collect Collect, stuff. Like some fallen objects, like (laughs) save some fun receipts. Um, (laughs) It'll just be all receipts. But yeah, I and I also just, like love it as an antidote to like bullet journaling. Yes, it's so funny because my handwriting is like I can't read my own handwriting; it's atrocious. <laughs> and bullet journaling, it just has never worked out for me. Like aspirational journaling for sure. Yes, I will look at them all day, but like making them, no way, couldn't be me. No. I just have chicken wow. scratch that depresses me. So. <laughs> Liz, this was so lovely. Thank you for being with us and for answering all of our divergent questions because they were all over the place. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I, again, like I just, you know, urge listeners if they, if they want to learn more information to seek out, seek out the experts here, especially the neurodiverse leaders that we have in the community. I mean, I always, I always think like, those are the people we want to be like talking to and <laughs> raising your risk because like you don't know it unless you go through it. You don't know it. You know what I mean? So it's so true. Yeah. Where can people find you and connect with you now? So right now I've been a little antisocial on social media, which is okay. Yeah. But I do have, I do have a wellness company. It's called pegasuswellness.co, not C-O-M. And what it is, is it's a education website for adults that, you know, identify as either neurodiverse or have sensory processing issues, have chronic health issues like myself or of all different abilities, right? So it's, it's wellness for, for all, all bodies, (laughs) for everybody. Again, that was sort of started in response to the lack of information and the lack of reliable information that's out there for neurodiverse individuals or people who identify that way. And on my social media, so Instagram is, you can just search my name, Dr. Liz Barr. LinkedIn, you can search my name, Elizabeth Barr. And then of course, my Substack is the magic word at Substack. So that's where I've been most recently is making Mm -hmm. more long form content. So if anybody wants to connect, that would be the best place to do so. Um, It's also where I am hosting my little bit more instruction on seasonal goal setting. Amazing. And then just one thing I have to say, thank you both for having me on here. It's a huge honor. It's been a huge pleasure. And thank you for being so open and, you know, vulnerable with what's going on in your, in in your own life and and with your own struggles. You are a gem, a delight. Bye. Bye. The 12 Plus is produced by yours truly, Wallace Miller Blanchard. Our theme music is made by Nathan McKay, and our wonderful editing is done by Softer Sound Studios, who you can find more information about in our show notes.